Let's turn in the Holy Scriptures to the book of Esther, chapter 2. We will read the entire chapter and the text we will focus on tonight is verses 1 through 20. Verses 1 through 20. Let us hear the word of the Lord in Esther chapter 2. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Haggai, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti, And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. And the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens which were meet to be given her, out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now when every maid's turn was come to go in unto, to go in to King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women, For so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women, to the custody of Sheeshgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. 
Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto the king Ahasuerus, into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Tiresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it is written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Thus far we read the Holy Scriptures. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we began our series on the book of Esther, it was observed that Esther is a strange book. It is strange by divine design, and in its strangeness lies its significance, and we remember that as we come now to chapter 2, because the strangeness of the first chapter continues in chapter 2. As the wrath of King Ahasuerus, an abusive tyrant, now subsides and he finds himself without Vashti, his beautiful queen. And he decides to find for himself another. And that leads to the events of this lengthy chapter in which an empire-wide search is made to find the candidate that meets the standards of this wicked king, Ahasuerus. And as we've seen, Ahasuerus cares only about one thing. And yet, in all of the muck of this corrupt court, at the heart of a corrupt empire ruled by an abusive tyrant, yet in all of this, God the unseen king is at work to preserve and to protect his church. And as we come into chapter 2, and we look at events which astonish us, astonish us because of their foolishness, and astonish us because of their breathtaking iniquity, we must remember that even here, God rules, God reigns, and God works and accomplishes the good of his people. 
And so in chapter 2, we come to the next scene in the book of Esther. The first scene was Ahasuerus' banquet, which was the occasion for the deposition of Queen Vashti for defying him. We saw how Vashti's act of defiance unmasked this king and showed him to be what he really is. Now we come to the next important event that sets up the history of the rest of this book. How Esther, of all people, becomes queen. Something that man might say is a surprising coincidence. Of all people, Esther becomes the queen of the most powerful empire at that time. Behind it is the unseen hand, the unseen king, working his purposes. One last thing by way of introduction. In Esther 2, we will face many questions that we can't fully be certain as to what the best answer is. We will find our curiosity many times piqued, but left unsatisfied. There are lots of ethical and factual questions that arise out of the history recorded in Esther 2, which the text simply doesn't give us enough information to answer. And so in interpreting this chapter and in the sermon tonight, We're going to exert ourselves to simply stick to what the text says and avoid as much as possible the speculation that we can easily take up in a chapter such as this. So with that in mind, let's look at Esther chapter 2. Our theme is Esther becomes queen. We'll notice three things in this process of Esther becoming queen. First, that she is summoned. Secondly, that she is prepared. and Finally, crowned. Esther 2 introduces to us the two Jewish characters around which the rest of the history is going to revolve and who will occupy a central place in the outworking of the unseen king's plan, Mordecai and Esther. And so we begin not with the first verse of the chapter, but we begin with verses 5, 6, and 7, which introduce these two important characters to us, beginning with Mordecai in verses 5 and 6. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, had carried away. Mordecai was a Jew. And here the text highlights that. That is what defines his character above all. He is a Jew who cares about his people and everything he does in the course of the history of the book of Esther has that as its goal. The preservation of the Jewish people. His name is Mordecai and that's the Hebrew form of a Babylonian name taken from the god Marduk. And that was common for Jews that had been taken into captivity, that they would be given a new name. You think of Daniel and his three friends, how Nebuchadnezzar gave them Babylonian names. And so it is here with Mordecai. Now, verses 5 and 6 tell us something about Mordecai's ancestry. It traces his family line back and identifies him as a Benjamite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, there's... A little bit of debate here about the first word of verse 6, that pronoun, who. 
question is, who is that word who referring to? Is it talking about Mordecai himself or this ancestor of Mordecai named Kish? That's an important question. If we identify the who as verse 6 as being Mordecai, that would mean Mordecai himself was alive during the reign of Jeconiah, and Mordecai himself was taken into captivity. And now, that's unlikely, given the fact that Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, the second to the last king of Judah, reigned almost 125 years ago. It is unlikely Mordecai is that old. The better interpretation is to take the who of verse 6 as referring to this man, Kish. The last name mentioned in verse 5. And going along that interpretation, it seems as though this brief genealogy in verses 5 and 6 is tracing the immediate ancestors of Mordecai. His father's name was Jer, his grandfather was Shimei, and his great-grandfather was Kish. And Kish was taken into captivity during the time of Jeconiah. That means Mordecai is a third or likely fourth generation exile. It also shows, these names do, that Mordecai was a descendant of Saul. That will be important later in the history. Now, The last thing that's said about Mordecai is that he was a Jew in Shushan, the palace. And verse 21 of the same chapter tells us that Mordecai sat at the king's gate. What this indicates to us is that Mordecai was a civil servant of some sort. He held a position in Ahasuerus' court. He was a government functionary. And this fits very well with the fact that his family was taken by Nebuchadnezzar into captivity during the time of Jeconiah, king of Judah. In Jeremiah 24, verse 1, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar took captives from Jerusalem during Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah's reign, and that Nebuchadnezzar in particular took the best and the brightest of the princes, as well as the skilled artisans and skilled workmen. Nebuchadnezzar was interested not merely in plundering Jerusalem's gold, but taking intellectual plunder as well, taking the best and brightest and incorporating them into his empire so as to strengthen Babylon. Daniel and his three friends are an example of that. They were princes taken, and Nebuchadnezzar had the intention of making them Babylonians his civil servants. And those men did end up occupying a position in the Babylonian government. And Daniel in the Persian government as well, after Babylon fell to Persia. And it seems that a similar thing was the case with Mordecai's family. Mordecai had inherited this position of civil service in the Persian government. Verse 7 now introduces us to the woman whose name is the name of this Bible book, Esther. Verse 7 says this of her, And he, Mordecai, brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. There we have Esther's Hebrew name, which simply means myrtle. And her Persian name, Esther, which means star, and is perhaps connected with the Persian goddess Ishtar. Esther was brought up by Mordecai, verse 7 says. Mordecai was her older cousin, the verse goes on. His uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. She was an orphan. And so Mordecai had adopted her into his home and raised her as his own daughter. 
Then verse 7 emphasizes one particular quality about Esther. And the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Fair and beautiful. Not because that was the only quality of note about Esther, but because that was a dangerous quality to possess in Ahasuerus's capital city. And that quality is emphasized because here's the suspense. Beautiful Esther is going to get caught up in the net of this wicked king. Now having met these two main characters of the book, we come back to the opening verses of the book and see how the king's net ends up catching Mordecai and Esther and bringing them into the events that the rest of the book is going to describe. The opening verses of the chapter describe King Ahasuerus and his search for a new queen. The chapter opens with King Ahasuerus brooding. Verse 1. After these things, and these things refer to all of the events in chapter 1, his banquets, his fallout with Vashti who defied him, and his deposition of her, as well as the publication of that foolish edict. After those things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, And what was decreed against her. He remembered. And that implies that some time had passed. And in fact. Some time had. Recall in chapter 1 verse 3. There we are told. That Ahasuerus threw his big banquet. In the third year of his reign. But if we now compare this with. Esther 2 verse 16, we learn that Esther was presented to the king in his seventh year of reigning. And that took place after 12 months of preparation to appear before the king. And so when we put those things together, we determine that the events of chapter 2 unfold three or four years After the events of chapter 1, some time had passed. We might wonder what took place during that time between Esther 1 and Esther 2. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But what we know from history gives us a very likely possibility. You remember before it was mentioned that Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes I, wanted to get revenge on the Greeks for their humiliation of his father, Darius I. Very likely, the banquets in the first chapter had as one of their purposes to garner support for an invasion of Greece. During these three years between chapter 1 and chapter 2, Ahasuerus likely launched that invasion of Greece. And as we know from secular history, he was defeated. He was delayed by the Greeks at Thermopylae, and he was decisively defeated in a naval battle at the Straits of Salamis. And he was sent back home, licking his wounds, back to Shushan. He left his general, Mardonius, over in Europe to try to finish the Greeks off. But the Greeks ended up finishing him off. And that's important because it helps explain the mood. The mood that Ahasuerus is in. 
He's been defied and thwarted again. His tender ego has been damaged. He's now back in Shushan licking his wounds. And what does Ahasuerus do? He turns to the pleasures he's addicted to. Entirely in character, this wicked king thinks about what he's missing. He lost his queen Vashti. Now, he doesn't miss her. We saw she was just an object to him. He misses the one quality he prized in a queen. Beauty. And so, his servants come up with a plan. Find a new queen. Find a new queen, King Ahasuerus. And that's verses 2 through 4. Here's the idea that his servants have. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Haggai the king's chamberlain, and so forth. And then they say, Whoever pleases the king most, pick her to be your new queen. Only two qualifications. Or three, that the candidates be young, beautiful, and unmarried. It doesn't cross anybody's mind in Ahasuerus' court whether the candidate for queen should be wise or be fit to hold a position in government. Ahasuerus doesn't care about that. It's time to carry out the last part of Memukan's advice find someone better than Vashti, meaning just as beautiful but more compliant. Find someone better than Vashti and give Vashti's royal estate to another. And so, as the text relates, predictably, Ahasuerus likes this advice of his servants. And he issues another empire-wide decree. And so now, throughout the 127 provinces, from Ethiopia to Pakistan, a giant net is cast. A net that is aimed to catch in it Every beautiful daughter of Persia and draw them to Shushan the capital so that King Ahasuerus may sample and choose his new queen. The text goes on to say in verse 3, Once all of the gathered daughters of Persia are brought to Shushan, they would be entrusted into the care of Haggai, the keeper of the women. And that title simply means he was the chamberlain who oversaw the part of the palace where the king's wives and concubines lived. He was a eunuch whose task it was to serve the noble women of the Persian court. And this here takes us into a culture, into a place so alien to us, so full of corruption of marriage. And yet, perhaps not so different from our culture when we think about it. Persian kings had many wives, we've observed that. And these wives, as well as the king's concubines, would live in this place called the House of the Women. It wasn't a separate house, but it was a part of the palace complex. And no men were allowed to enter into this house except the king and certain royal officials that he appointed to serve his wives, such as Haggai. 
And in this house of the women, in English we often call it a harem, there was a strict hierarchy. The person in charge was the main queen of the king, the one who would be the mother of the royal heir. This would be Amestris, Ahasuerus' main queen. And on the second rung of the ladder would be the other legal wives of the king. And this is where Vashti would have fit and where Esther would end up. And beneath them would be the unmarried princesses and other noble women who stayed at the king's court. And on the final bottom rung would be all of the concubines that the king kept for his wicked pleasure. And so the daughters of Persia are gathered and brought to this house of the king. Here's why that quality of Esther was so dangerous. The strong net of this wicked king cast across the old, his whole empire starts first in Shushan. And it catches Esther. Sometimes it's presented that Ahasuerus' decree was starting some sort of beauty contest and anyone who wanted to apply could come and try for queenship. And that's not really the way the text presents it. Certainly, there were many daughters of Persia who were happy at this opportunity. This was a chance to become a queen, or at very least to become a concubine in the, in the king's court. And that was far better than the life of a commoner on the frontiers of the empire. But there was no choice here. The king sent out his agents, and the agents collected those they deemed good candidates for the king's choice. And that comes out in the very language of verse 8. So it came to pass when the king's commandment, this is a commandment of the king. This was not an offer, come try out this contest. Commandment in his decree was heard. And when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan, Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also. Notice that passive verb. She was brought. It doesn't seem as though Esther volunteered for this. There's not indication that she wanted it at first, though one might question later. Rather, she's caught in a net, the king's net, and brought to the palace. But once there, as verse 9 says, she conducted herself winsomely and pleased Haggai and obtained kindness of him, literally lifted favor in his sight. And so the idea is that she acted winsomely in order to gain the favor of the man who was put in charge of this whole operation. So that she received preferential treatment. Haggai saw Esther and said, this is a likely candidate. And so he gave her better quarters in the house of the women. And he saw to it that she was given the things that she needed. Things for purification, verse 9 says. And purification there really should be translated for beautifying. It's talking about cosmetics. And such things as belonged to her. And a better translation there would be food. A portion of the king's food. And also seven hand-picked maidservants to assist her in all of her needs. And so already, 
After Esther is caught in this net of the king's decree, we find that she is succeeding above and beyond the other candidates. And through this all, she keeps her identity a secret. As the text tells us, Mordecai instructed her not to disclose that she was a Jew. Why she was instructed, it's hard to tell. Was Mordecai afraid that this would endanger her in some way, perhaps? Or it does raise the question whether Mordecai was somewhat complicit in this and saw this as an opportunity to gain more power in Persia. That is a possibility as well. Indeed, Mordecai's conduct is rather suspect in the chapter. So Esther is summoned, caught in the net of the king's decree, and brought into the king's palace. Before we go on in the history, let's apply it. How how do we apply some of these events in Esther chapter 2. And the first thing that comes before us is the question that can't be escaped. What do we do with Mordecai and Esther's conduct here? Many interpreters have made Esther and Mordecai out to be heroes, as if they conduct themselves blamelessly in this chapter. But when we really look at what happens here, we can't go in that direction. Of course, the worst iniquity lies in the part of Ahasuerus, the way Esther and Mordecai conduct themselves is not above reproach. Others have tried to make them out as complete villains, and maybe that's the case if Esther and Mordecai are reprobate, but as we've observed before, the text simply doesn't give us enough information to make that judgment. The truth could very well be in the middle, that Esther and Mordecai Though maybe children of God are very weak children of God. And we see them here as they get caught in this powerful net of King Ahasuerus. Struggling with what to do and making serious mistakes. And responding sinfully. But because the text in God's wisdom does not tell us the spiritual state of Esther and Mordecai. We ultimately leave that question unanswered. It's not the important question. But we can apply the conduct that we find in the chapter and the faults that we see, particularly in Esther's compliance and compromise with the ungodliness that sweeps her On the one hand, it's clear that Esther was given no choice. The king commanded and she was taken. And we can understand her difficulty and we ought to sympathize with that difficulty. How can she stand up to this mighty king? And who's to say we would have done any different in her shoes? That should make us hesitant to judge her too harshly. And yet, on the other hand, was there really nothing she could do in the face of this decree? The king didn't give her a choice, but that doesn't mean she had no choice. Of all people, Vashti had shown that. 
Vashti, the queen, had said no to the wicked command of King Ahasuerus. And she paid for it. She suffered the consequences, but she said no. Of all people, that unbelieving queen Vashti had shown, you can stand up to evil. You do not have to bow before it and comply with it and compromise with it. Think of Daniel and his three friends again in a somewhat similar situation where they were taken into, uh, taken into Nebuchadnezzar's court. And Nebuchadnezzar had this mission, I'm going to make these young Jewish men into Babylonians. They're going to eat my meat. I'm going to start with that. Get them to dispense with those weird Jewish laws that they follow. I'm going to give them Babylonian names. And you remember what Daniel, his three friends did. By the grace of God, they stood up in the face of that crushing power of King Nebuchadnezzar. They refused to eat the king's meat. Daniel's three friends refused to bow to the golden image and glorified God in that. Here in the text, we see Esther complying And compromising with the world in a way she should not have. Understanding the pressure. Yet nonetheless. She could have done more. We observed earlier that she was given a portion of the king's meat. That would have been a time to reveal her Jewish identity. That she would not and could not eat of the king's meat. That very well could have disqualified her from this from this candidacy for the next queen. There were things that could have been done. But rather the way the text presents it is we see Esther complying. She seems to resign herself to the circumstances and begins playing along in order to make the best of it. And as we read on in the text, as she continues to win favor with the chamberlain and ultimately with the king, it's not merely that she finds favor in their sight. There's more activeness in those expressions. She wins their favor. She's working for it. And here's the application. Here's the warning. Compliance with the world. Compliance with evil. And compromise with it. Even under pressure. Does not lead in a good direction. And is not the calling of the Christian. The calling of God's people even under pressure, even in the face of titanic world power is to stand fast and confess the name of Jesus Christ. Not try to blend in. Not try to hide your identity. Not say, well, I can't do anything in the face of this power. I will just submit to it. I will just go along with it. I'll try to make the best of it. No. Christian is called to stand fast Of course he can't in his own strength. He said a moment ago, none of us should judge Esther too harshly because who would have done differently in her shoes? Save for the grace of God, we would have done the same thing. The Christian's calling is to stand and to confess the name of Christ openly. Pressure from the world, pressure from evil is not an excuse to bend the knee to it and to go along with it. And as we'll see, the consequences of this compliance and compromise will be grave. Esther will be swept 
on this tide of iniquity into adultery with this wicked king Ahasuerus and ultimately into marriage to an unbeliever, a unlawfully divorced man. Bad things came of that compromise. When we feel pressure, pressure of the world, pressure from the spirit of Antichrist, which is at work in our age. Beloved, stand, stand fast, depending on the grace of God. Call upon him. That's one thing, it's striking. We don't read of that, do we? Of Esther or Mordecai calling upon the name of God in this moment of intense trial. God's people must rely on him and his strength because they can't stand by themselves. We see that here, how Esther and Mordecai fall. They fall. Part of this too is the spiritual weakness of Esther's upbringing, undoubtedly. We've observed that the mere fact that Esther and Mordecai are still in Persia, even though Cyrus issued his decree letting the Jews go home, he issued that 50 years ago, the mere fact that they're in Persia doesn't mean they're unbelievers, doesn't mean they're reprobates, but it does mean they've been sitting in Persia much longer than they needed to. Cut off from the means of grace, the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, who would be at this time preaching to the exiles who returned to the land of Judah. They were cut off from the means of grace. They were in a spiritually vulnerable position. And as we learn more about Mordecai, the impression we get is that he was not a spiritually strong man. He was a man who was first of all concerned with political leverage and using that to protect the Jews in Persia. And so the spiritual weakness of Esther's family comes through here. And an application arises out of that. How vigilant and diligent we must be in our family lives as parents. In teaching our children, yes, but also not compromising with the world. When we compromise, it's a stepping stone for our children to compromise farther. Let us obey God rather than man. Not comply or compromise with the world, even when it seems so mighty and so irresistible. In Christ, we can do all things. His grace is sufficient for us. His power is far beyond anything that the Ahasuerus of our day can throw at the church or throw at us. Stand fast in the Lord. Well, the king's command gathering the potential queens to his harem has now been fulfilled. And the text goes on to describe the preparation process, the lengthy preparation of each candidate for going to the king. And this preparation process is described now in verse 12 of the text. Now, when every maid's turn was come to go in to King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of women, For so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things, for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given unto her to go with her out of the king's house, or out of the house of the women, unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned. 
The iniquity is breathtaking, isn't it? Before each of the candidates would appear before the king, they had to undergo 12 months of preparation. And again, the word purification or purifying here in the text refers to beautifying with cosmetics. And here we see the carnality of Ahasuerus come out again. He's looking for a new Vashti. And the one thing he cared about in Vashti was her beauty. And so he wants to make sure that all of the candidates are at their best when they come to him. And this is a man who doesn't care about how long it takes. He threw a feast that lasted half a month. Why not have all of these candidates spend time with cosmetics and other things, beautifying themselves for an entire year before they appear before the king? And so that is what is done. Verse 12 describes the process. For six months, they were to use oil of myrrh, and implied here was regular bathing in myrrh and other costly oils. Followed by six months of treatment with sweet odors, costly perfumes, and perhaps even incense that was burned within their quarters. It was believed that the the perfumed smoke of that incense would seep into the skin and stay there. And Ahasuerus can do this. He's the king. We see the danger of power in the hands of a sinful man like Ahasuerus. It gave him unrestrained expression to his old man. There's an old saying that we know absolute power corrupts absolutely. We see that here. But really, absolute power simply lets the corruption that's already there in human nature flow forth freely. And that's Ahasuerus here. Once the preparation was complete, each candidate was given a turn to try to impress the king. That's verses 13 through 14. This was the decisive step in the queen selection program. And the text describes this decisive step very modestly without leaving any doubt what went on. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned. A one-night stand. A night of adultery. And it was the quality of the adultery that would be the decisive factor for the king's choice. Each had their turn. The king would make his decision. Verse 14 Tells us another detail that implies the fate of the candidates who were not chosen. One would be chosen, but the rest would not be going home afterwards. You'll notice in verse 14 that after the candidates left the king's quarters, they were given over to the custody not of Haggai, who oversaw the whole operation, but this new man, this other eunuch in the king's service, Sheashgaz, who oversaw the concubines. Those who weren't chosen, weren't sent home, but were put back in the king's harem on the bottom of the rung, on the bottom of the ladder, to be kept at the king's pleasure. Breathtaking iniquity. This is the corruption of the human nature put on display in Ahasuerus. Well, let's apply. What can we gather from this preparation of the candidates 
for queenship. Likely we find the immorality and the worldliness of it astounding. And that's what makes it a relevant text for us today because though at first glance this seems alien to us, the culture is different, yet we really swim in the same sea as Esther did. The sexual ethics we see here in Ahasuerus is essentially the same as the sexual ethics of our culture. Ahasuerus's court is very much like Hollywood today, and not just Hollywood, but American culture in general, which praises the availability and the acceptability of nearly every sort of sexual perversion. In our culture, your own choice lust is God, and you must be free to pursue it. The Persian world, as described in our text, is our world. And the corruption that we see in Ahasuerus, this is humbling, is the corruption that lies in our own nature. And but for the grace of God, it too would flow out like it did in this man. There's nothing new under the sun. Our age is possessed with pleasure madness. Our age has as its goal the realization of self, what you think you are and ought to be, and nobody, no God, no faith, not even reason and logic can tell you otherwise. Marriage, we see how it's degraded in this text. It's treated as something to be entered into at will and something to be discarded at will. Ahasuerus was displeased with Vashti. She didn't do what he wanted, so he got rid of her. Is it any different in our society, the way marriage is treated? The Persian court is here, and we're living in the midst of it. It's the sea in which we swim, and it can have an influence on us. Thus, the applications to us. To stand fast by the grace of God as Daniel and his three friends and other saints have. By the power of God's grace, stand fast. Resist the devil and he shall flee. Resist the spirit of the age. And the creeping tendrils of its philosophy. What are we living for? What do we spend our time on, and all the wealth that we have in our land. It's so easy in modern America to live like a Hasuerus lived. What do we look for in our marriages, in dating? What is marriage about? Is it for me? Is it for my pleasure? Or is it for God and glorifying Him and loving the one He gives to me with self-giving love patterned after Jesus Christ? What spirit rules in our midst? The spirit of our age, which is the spirit of Ahasuerus and Persia, or is it the spirit of the living Christ? When marriage has its hardships, we don't get along when there's fights, when there's strain. What's the direction we go. It ought not to be the direction Ahasuerus goes, end it. 
the direction that the word of God sets before us. Christ-likeness. Confessing our faults to one another. Forgiving one another. Esteeming other better than self. Cherishing that marriage bond that God has created. Being faithful to it. The world says, when you don't get your own way, when life is hard, be like a Hasuerus and drown your sorrows in your favorite pleasure. Go to your lusts. They will feed you. And yet it's empty. It will not satisfy the soul. It will only degrade and destroy and bring misery. The word of God says, turn to Christ. Turn to Him who is the true bread of life who alone can satisfy the soul and save, restore, heal. True satisfaction for the soul is found only in that saving relationship with Jesus Christ who is the Lord. Let's resist the spirit of our age. Resist the temptations to live like an Ahasuerus. Hold fast to the word of God, even amidst all the pressures of our world, which is so much like the court of the king of Persia. The outcome of all of this is that Esther ends up crowned queen of Persia. Eventually, Esther had her turn. Verse 17 says, And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Ahasuerus loved her above all the rest of the candidates. Understand, that was not love. Ahasuerus loved in the way you might say, I love this ice cream after sampling a bunch of flavors. You love it because it was your favorite and it gave you the best sensation of sweetness and taste. That's what Ahasuerus means. This was not love. Esther the beautiful pleased him more than the others. He had found his new Vashti, who was as beautiful, if not more so, but right now, more compliant. What he means is she pleases me, and so I make her queen. That's the world's view of love, and we make an application here. Let us not be deluded into thinking that's what love is. That love is what pleases me. I will show affection to the one who pleases me, who gives me something, who fulfills a desire that I have. That's ultimately self-love. And self-love then treats the other as an object to be consumed. That was a Ahasuerus. Vashti was an object to him, an object of his pleasure. And that's what Esther would be too. It's not love. Love of that sort isn't worthy to be called love. True love shown to us in Jesus Christ 
self-giving, seeking the blessedness of the one who is loved, rejoicing in doing good to the beloved. In that, true love finds its greatest pleasure and sweetness in blessing. It is better to give than to receive, the Lord Jesus said. And the wonder of it is, when we give, then we receive richly. Apply that to our marriages. Apply that to our relationships. Our dating relationships. Not the love of the world. Not the love of a Hasuerus. That's not what we want or should seek. But the true love modeled by Jesus Christ. Well, Ahasuerus liked Esther best, and so he put the royal crown on her head. She was crowned. She was made queen instead of Vashti. Was this really good for Esther? It's hard to say it was. Sure, the world would look at it and say, look at the upward mobility. How much of a better life she had. Now she lived in the house of the women. She had everything. She was married to an unbelieving, pagan, abusive king. This was not good for Esther. And it's hard to believe that she would find much happiness in her relationship, her marriage with this man. And yet, we have here an example Of God using a great evil for good and turning it to his people's profit. The unseen king is at work. Even in the mess that is the court of Persia. Even as this horrible net is cast by the king. Gathering candidates from all over the Persian Empire into his harem. Even as he catches Esther. And even as Esther in her weakness complies and compromises and goes along with it. And ends up married to this man. In all of this God reigns and the unseen king is at work. As we've said before in his most excellent and just manner. Good will come of it. And that's the rest of the book of Esther good that will come of it. So verse 18 says, The king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And the scene ends with great outward joy. What better thing to do in Ahasuerus' mind than throw another feast? Esther's feast. To celebrate his new queen. To honor her. But not really Esther's feast. Notice the deviousness about Ahasuerus' action here. Esther's feast is really about him. I win, he says. Vashti wouldn't come. Vashti wouldn't come to my feast wearing the royal crown. Here's my new Vashti wearing the royal crown at my feast. Behold, I am king. I rule. That's the message of Ahasuerus' feast. Even as he puts on the mask of generousness. He gives release to the provinces. He relieves them from some of the taxes and tribute that they were to give him. He gives gifts according to the state of the king, the text says. Using the same language that we read in chapter 1 verse 7. Talking about the king's liberal distribution of his wine. 
It's a power play. Ahasuerus is the same man he was at the start of the book. And yet Esther is his queen. And Esther is there because God will be pleased to use Esther for great good. Let's finish by making one application. In the opening sermons of this series, we've seen how Ahasuerus is the great contrast to the King, Jesus Christ. And we want to make that application again here in connection with this chapter. For Jesus Christ also chooses, summons, prepares, and crowns his bride. But in such a different way. He chooses. But not on the basis of what he sees in his people. Not because he finds one to be the most beautiful among all the rest. No. He sets his love upon his people. Merely of grace that we are ugly in ourselves in our sin. He summons us. He draws us to him, not with the net of manipulative, abusive power, but with the sweet power of his saving grace. He calls us out of darkness into his light, into his fellowship. He prepares. He's preparing a place in his palace, in his father's house for his bride. And he prepares his bride Spiritually beautifying his bride with that oil of gladness which is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. Rather than being concerned only with the outward appearance, our king, our bridegroom gives us a new heart by the power of his spirit. A heart that throbs with true love for him, reflecting his true love for us. He takes us, he takes us to himself, not as a tyrant, but as a loving husband and king who has prepared for us joys that I have not seen nor ear heard nor have it entered into the heart of man to conceive. He prepares us for our place in his house even with the trials and the afflictions that he sends upon us meant to refine our faith so that our faith gleams brighter than gold. And he's preparing a coronation. The crown is waiting. The royal estate of the bride of Christ is waiting. And it will be ours on that last day. Christ is everything. Ahasuerus is not. How that stirs our hearts and kindles our hope, does it not? That's our God. That's our King. That's our Christ. And all of this history ugly as it is in many respects, was in the hand of the unseen king and made to work. Work towards and work for that marriage, Christ and his church. Oh, the depths, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Amen. Faithful God and Father, bless the passage of Scripture that we have read and studied in this evening hour, and may its truth be hidden in our hearts to encourage us, to strengthen us, to resist the world and the spirit of our age.
and to cling to Christ, our King and our Bridegroom. We thank Thee that Thou hast called us into His saving fellowship, and that Thou dost prepare us by Thy Holy Spirit for the place that we shall have in glory. Grant soon that the Lord Jesus may come, and we may receive that promised crown. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.